the worship team. The kids are being dismissed, and uh, I'm thankful that we even got to keep the little ones in here today. Uh, so that was a, a blessing. So if uh, you're a parent of one of our, what we call kinder church group, uh, and you had your hands full, uh, hopefully it was uh, for the good in the end, and hopefully they got to hear the message of Christmas. And So thank you for letting them stay in this morning. Uh, as you join me, uh, I'm going to start uh, this morning with just an introductory passage. It would take weeks to go through this one, so it's not uh, an exhaustive passage. We're going to use it by literally to introduce the text. I'm going to ask you to join me in Ephesians chapter number 2 this morning. Uh, again, we're not going to deep dive there. We're just going to look into it. Ephesians chapter number 2. I don't know where y'all's mind was going during all the, the singing this morning. I caught myself, and, and I might be the only one in here. I forget which song it was. Uh, o Come Emmanuel. I may be the only one. Maybe someone online. I caught myself, Lord, just have mercy on the nation of Israel. I caught myself praying for Israel. Looking forward to the day when they're going to recognize their king. Right now they have rejected him. On that last song, where was your mind going? That's a tremendous song. Uh, where was your mind? You say, boy, it was personal to me, and it was to me as well. Uh, but I caught myself uh, thinking about someone that's here today. I'd love to see him get saved today. That'd be awesome. They need to get saved. I, everything I, I can tell, they need to get saved, but they can be saved. And I want them to, because I think all of that song is not just true in my life, but I could, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the Lord get glory in their life. And I've been praying to that end, that today, Lord, that would be good. They would get saved today. Why is that so important? Ephesians chapter number 2, in a moment I'm going to start reading verse 1. It's helpful if you have your own Bible. If you're only relying on the screen, uh, you're going to lose a little bit here. So if you have your Bible on your phone, a tablet... Uh, paper copy like I have in front of me that's going to be useful I probably should have just put these on the screen let me read verses 1 through 3 to set up the first word of verse 4 that you'll finally see on the screen verse number 1 of Ephesians 2 says and you so Paul is talking to Ephesian Christians this is a real city in what we call Turkey I've been there uh, it was a tremendous stop on our trip three years ago we got to go see the remains of this ancient city of Ephesus and there were real Christians there, new believers. Paul's the one who started that church, and he's writing back to these people that he loves. And he's telling them, and you, so hear it, this applies to all Christians here today. If you're a Christian, this is our story, our past, our present, and our future. This is, a, this is an awesome text. I'm not going to preach it today. We're going to just read it in a few comments. And you, you ought to make this personal if you're a Christian. <laughs> And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. So we're following the whole world is heading this direction. And out in front of us is the Pied Piper himself. The maestro, follow me. And he's conducting, and it's none other than Satan himself. 
And here goes the world following him on this road. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is our story. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. The spirit that is now in the world, now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. If you're a true Christian, you know, oh, I, I have lived among the sons of disobedience. And verse 3 is true of me. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The passion. I want that. That's how we live. I want it. I will go after it. I will do it. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Our very nature made us children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our biography. We're born in sin and trespass. We're born because of Adam, our forefather's sin, his sin. We're born in sin. We're literally born in the sandbox of sin. And we're just playing in the sandbox of sin and iniquity and trespass. All of us, all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, we've all trespassed and sinned. Trespass, trespass means we've crossed over the line. God made these laws. We were born over the line. We fell over the line. We walked over the line. We stomped on the line. We leapt over the line. We ran over the line. All of those are true. We shot, and you have to hit the mark to go live with God in heaven forever. We shot and missed the mark, but we not only missed the mark, we shot the other way on purpose. That's our story. And then verse 4, but God, look at verse 4, but God being rich, God is rich in mercy. Who's rich? Who is rich? God. God is rich. Paul, when he was writing this book, and there's a reason we're turning here, he's into this idea of the wealth of God. So that's our story, verses 1 through 3. That's us on our own. But God, being, in his being, rich in mercy. Why is he rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. You sensing it? I'm going to have to grab a tissue. It's one of those mornings. That's all right. But God, rich, being rich in mercy. Why is he rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve? Because of the great love with which he loved us. So he loved us. That leads to this mercy. When did he love us? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you get this? While we're playing in the sandbox of sin, God loves us even then. That's when he loved us first. While we're in the sandbox of sin. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. That's an awesome phrase. Catch. That is such the opposite of verses 1 through 3. He made us alive. We were dead. He made us alive together with. Death means we're separated from God because of our sin. But God, because he's rich in mercy and because he loved us, so his love led to his mercy, which made us alive 
to be together with Christ. And then, to drive home the point that matters, Paul says at the end of verse 5, he just inserts it. So everybody, if you're a Christian, hear it. By grace, you have been saved. By grace. Grace is God just says, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you something. Hey, get ready. I'm giving you something. What does he give us? Not only has he made us alive together with Christ, but verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's not like going to happen. Spiritually, this is our position right now. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. We who are saved are in Christ, seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. But why? You say, well, it's because of that love that he had, which led to the mercy. Well, that's true. Oh, you ought to get verse 7. I don't have verse 7 yet. I don't get it yet. I want to get this. The day is coming. Not the day. The time is coming. Because days won't matter. The time is coming where I'm going to get verse 7. Verse 7 may be, may be the most encouraging verse in all the Bible. You ought to go home and just chew on verse 7. Verse 7 is why we read this. Back up to verse 6. He's raised us up together with him and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, we're in this age, so that in the coming ages, he might show. He's going to like show it. He's not just going to have it. What's he going to show? He's going to show the immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace. He's rich in mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve because I'm rich in mercy. But it doesn't stop there. I'm going to give you so much you don't deserve because he's rich in grace. But he's not just rich. He's immeasurably rich in grace. And God is going to show that. How? In kindness. Toward us in Christ Jesus. All I know is this in Christ Jesus keeps coming up, which tells me in Christ is the place to be. That's the place to be. In Christ, that's where you want to be. That's where the massive blessings are. And if it wasn't clear from verse 6, look at verse 8. For by grace you have been, he's talking to people who've already been saved. This is how it happens, though. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace, it's just a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Our part is the faith. The massive part, the bigger part, is grace on God's end. And this, this whole being saved, and even the faith and the grace, this is not your own doing you say, I'm not yet a Christian. Then you better get verse number 9. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 7 again. Why is he doing this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. I'm in a room right now with people who are like myself. Not all fit this category. Not, this isn't everyone, but there are several, quite a few, I, I dare say many in the room. Our future, our eternity is going to be spent 
as recipients of the immeasurable riches of the grace of God being poured out and lavished on us, shown in acts of kindness through eternity. That's where you want to be. That's what's being offered this morning. That's what's, we're talking about the big stuff. This is what's being offered today. So our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Would you flip over there? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And for context, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, ultimately leading to verse number 9. Second Corinthians chapter 8. I'll go ahead and tell you the context here so you'll get it and it'll make sense as we're going through. Second Corinthians chapter 8, would you look at verse 1? You want to kind of leave your Bible open here for a little while. We want you to know, so Paul, here's the context, he's writing, hey, when I say Corinth, y'all help me out, anybody know what country we're talking about? The country's still there today, Greece, Corinth is in southern Greece in a region called Achaia, I got to go there, it's a real place, I saw the ruins of the city, it was awesome, but he's going to be talking to this group and he's going to talk about another group up in Macedonia, so here we live in what they call upstate South Carolina. And when people refer to upstate South Carolina, they're probably, if they're not from here, they're probably referring mainly to Greenville, Spartanburg, maybe Anderson, and, and towns like Easley and Powdersville and Rock Hill. I guess Rock Hill would probably count in part of that. And, and Gaffney and, and all of these, just all that area. You're in the upstate, but again, particularly Greenville, Spartanburg. When we read right here in a moment about Macedonia, Paul is referring to very specific, he's talking to Christians in southern Greece about Christians in northern Greece. Again, I got to, these real places. The Macedonians refer primarily to three areas and their surrounding regions. Philippi, way up north, that's in Macedonia. Thessalonica, a couple hours on a bus down below that. And then Berea, a couple hours on down below that. And then you got about a four-hour bus ride from Berea down to Corinth. You ought to go there if you can someday. It's an awesome trip. Now look at verse number 1. Paul's writing to the Christians in the southern region, and he's collecting an offering. Again, he's not here. He's somewhere else writing to the Corinthians to start giving your money, financial resources, to help poor Christians in Jerusalem. So he's collecting offerings from the churches in Greece, Gentile Christians, to send back to their Jewish brothers and sisters who are also believers in Christ back over in Jerusalem. Verse 1 now. To the Corinthians, the southern Grecian Christians, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Do you Corinthians know what God's been doing in the churches of the Macedonians? For in a, so really get verse 2 and following, 2 to 5. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty. You have all that. You, you fill in these terms. In a severe test of affliction, that's their life. Their abundance of joy, their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty. He's talking financial poverty. Have overflowed in a wealth of generosity to a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they, so here Paul's going to give a testimony about what God's been doing up among the Macedonians. For they gave 
according to their means. They gave according to their means. As I can testify, here's what Paul's saying. I have lived with them in Philippi. I've lived with them in Thessalonica. I have lived for a short time with those in Berea. I know their lifestyle. I know their means. So he says, they gave according to their means. As I can testify, and beyond their means. They've given beyond their means. Of their own accord. Nobody made them do this. They did it on their own, their own accord. In fact, verse 4 is laced with three very strong words. Paul says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Could you imagine modern day Christians hearing a need and begging, begging earnestly, please let me do the favor of giving to this offering. Please let me give. Paul says, they've given according to their means and beyond their means. I know this, Paul says. Now, verse 5, he says, they gave. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first. They just didn't give their money. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Lord, I give you me. And then, by the will of God, to us. Paul says, they gave more money than they could afford to give. I tried to tell them they couldn't afford it. They said, please, earnestly, begged, can we give to this? Let us, do us this favor. We want to give. And Paul says, they gave more than they could really give. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord and they gave themselves to us in the will of the Lord. Now, verse 6 is a little shift. Paul's now saying why he's using these Macedonians. He says, accordingly, accordingly, because of that, what's happening in Macedonia, we urged Titus, this is a real man, helper of Paul, that as he had started... So he should complete among you this act of grace. Hey, Corinthians, because what's going on here, we told Titus, Titus, go down there and complete the act of grace among the Corinthians, and I'm sending you a letter with him. We urged Titus as he started so he should complete among you this act of grace. So here's Paul's plead with them, verse 7, but Corinthians, as you excel in everything, you excel in everything, Corinthians, in faith, in speech, you excel in knowledge, in all earnestness, earnestness, and in our love for you. And that word there could go both ways. You, you excel in our love for you and your love for us. You excel in that. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Excel in this giving. You say, are you preaching on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? Nope. This is all just background. Now verse 8. I say this, Paul writes to the Corinthians, I say this as to be real clear, not a command. I say this not as a command. Corinthians, you don't have to give anything. You don't have to give anything. So I say this not as a command, but to prove. I say this so that you will prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. They've proved their love is genuine Corinthians, you excel in love. I want to see you prove that you really do love. Excel in this offering as well. And then verse 9 is our text. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, Paul, why are you pleading with us to do this? Because for you know, by the way, every Christian knows something. Every Christian knows something of, of verse 9. You know, may, may not know the depth, nor do I. But we all, if you're a true Christian, you know some of what verse 9 is teaching. We want to grow in it this morning. 
He says, do this for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, yours emphasized, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul's collecting an offering. He uses two examples to appeal to the Corinthians to give as they should. He says you ought to give because the Macedonians gave. And you ought to give because you know the grace. You know about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich as well. So you have two great examples. If you're taking notes, write the following. Back in verses 1 through 5, here's what we learn. The Macedonians, it was about persecution and it was about economic downturn and hardship and put it all together, guys. They lived in severe affliction, like severe affliction. So Paul says when two things collided among the Macedonians, when their abundance of joy, they have like great joy, when that collides with severe poverty, when those two things, they love their relationship with God. They love that because of this great joy and their burden for their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. When their great joy collided with severe, extreme poverty, I mean like beggar. These people were more poor than anyone that I know of in this room. And I know of some situations in this room. These people were more poor than anyone here. I mean like beggarly. They don't have, they don't have it. And yet when these two things collide, you say, what was the result? Write it down. The result was a wealth of generosity toward the poor saints in, in, in Jerusalem. Their great joy meant their extreme, not poverty, extreme poverty. And the result was very generous outpouring, a wealth of generosity toward the poor saints who are in Jerusalem. And so we write this at the end of your note. We learn something here. Christians, so log this. Christians can and should have joy even amid affliction. Secondly, Christians can and should have generosity even amid poverty. Christians can have joy amid affliction. Christians can and should have generosity amidst poverty. Now you may be hearing that and you may be thinking, Jeff, I can't give hundreds and thousands of dollars every week. Jeff, I can't give $100. I promise you, I can't give 50 See, that's where we mess up. This is why we mess up. We assume when we start talking about generosity that we're talking about a dollar amount, an amount, a size. I'm not preaching primarily on giving. This is still a quick introduction. Well, not so quick. This is an introduction. The body is going to be a quick part of the message. It really will. What we need to understand is that we can have poverty and yet still be generous and it's called true generosity because I want to let you know something about the giving. God is not so much measuring the size of your gift. Now somebody may say, man, that preacher's about to make a statement he's going to regret. You should never tell people what he's about to say. Oh no, if you'll hear the whole thing, we'll be fine. You'll, you'll be right. God is not measuring so much. He's aware of the size of our 
giving, but he's less concerned about the size of the giving. He's more concerned about the sacrifice of the giving. And he's mostly concerned not only about the sacrifice, but also the heart with which it is given. When we understand that the Lord wants us to give not out of law and out of command and because we have to and we're expected to, but we give because we love Him and we can't deny like genuine love is going to come out and you're going to give if you have genuine love. You will not be able to be stopped from giving. But God is mostly concerned about looking for that kind of heart and is the offering and the gift to Him, is it sacrificial? So for that end, somebody... A $10 gift to the Lord is truly sacrificial for them. But there are others, a $500 gift would be a slap in God's face because that is not sacrificial. So God is like, oh, I'm aware of the size, but I want to know about, I'm looking for the sacrifice in your giving, and I'm looking for your heart. Is your heart truly cheerful? Are you doing this willingly? Would you notice with me now three things out of verse 9? Because Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to give a gift that they're not required to give. You're not, by the way, this is not a command. You don't have to do this. So then why should we give? Because you received a far greater gift, a far more undeserved gift. Look at verse 9. Why give? For. Somebody give me another word for the word for. Verse 9. This is used, it's not often there's the word for used this way. It's usually used as a preposition. Today, in this passage, it's used as a conjunction. Because, do you see it? For you know the grace. So I would not just stand up and start preaching. The Bible says, for you know the grace. I can't just start launching from there. What does this word for mean? Oh, it goes back to verse number 8, which ties back to verses 1 through 7. So this is the context. Based on that, Paul now teaches, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And this is a Christmas text. Number one, would you write this down? Let's look quickly at the eternal riches of Christ. The eternal riches of Christ. The eternal riches of Christ. He who is rich. He who is rich. We know the grace of God because he who is rich. So what, is, what does it mean to be rich? You say, well, like if I were to ask you, don't look it up in the dictionary and I just said off the cuff, don't even answer out loud, just in your heart. Say, what, what does it mean for, to you? You say, well, if somebody's rich... They have an abundance, right? They have a lot. Of, they have a lot of whatever it is. That cake is rich. That chocolate is rich. It has abundance. Maybe we would say it's to have extra. To be rich is to have excess. To be rich is to have like more than is needed. More, more than needed. More than needed. Okay. We're talking about the eternal riches of Christ. So we're not talking about there's levels of richness. And this person, they have more and they have an abundance. But this person over here has like a lot more than their more. This person has like extreme riches. None of that applies to Christ because the words we're going to use for him are these. He has boundless richness. His riches are bound. Like there are no boundaries to the riches of Christ. There are no, there's no measuring. It is measureless. We saw a word a while ago in Ephesians chapter 2. It is his riches are immeasurable. Immeasurable. Can I even use this word? The riches of Christ are infinite riches infinite riches that's what we're talking about with Christ now here's our question what and I want you to really make a list in your mind because I'll have a partial one what is Christ rich in the eternal riches you say oh, well I guess dollars 
no, we're not talking about dollars. We didn't have any dollars in eternity past. So what are we talking about? What is he rich in? Paul's trying to get us to get this concept. To understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand that he was rich. Rich. Infinitely. Measurelessly. Boundlessly. Wealthy and rich in what? Everything good that is good to have. Write this down. I'm going to offer a partial list. Just write them down. Let's go ahead and show the note. He is immeasurably, boundlessly, infinitely rich in things like life, holiness, power, his position. No one else had his position. Possessions, obviously, is implied by that. Yes, he had immeasurable, boundless, infinite riches and possessions. Knowledge and glory. And we could literally just spend the rest of our time together just parking right there and saying this is what's represented by the riches of Christ. Like life that we call eternal life. Do you understand this morning that the Son of God in eternity past, then and now and forever is as rich as God is rich because why? Why can I, you with me? Why can we honestly and accurately say that the Son of God is as rich as God Himself? Because, why? He is God. He's as rich as God because He is God the Son. He's the eternal God the Son. He's as rich as God. There are not three gods, but there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's one God. But three different persons, co-equal in their authority and power and all their attributes. And as God is rich and wealthy, infinitely in all of these things, then the Son of God was infinitely rich and wealthy in all of these things. He had infinite wealth of life. So much so that this person, we're celebrating his birth this morning. He made the earth. He made the universe. He made it. He gave life to you and to all the other life forms. And yet it never lessened his life at all. He has infinite life. He can make all the life there is and sustain that life. And it never threaten or lower his life. We can't go through them all. Infinite power. He is rich in power. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered? I've wondered about this this week. Lord, why is the universe the size that it is? Well, what size is it? We don't know. It just keeps going. We've not found the end of it. But why is it so big? What I'm about to say is probably going to sound a little bit earth-centric. But I believe this is true. I believe the universe is the size that it is. I know it is that size because God determined it would be that size. Now, why? Because he took pleasure in making it that size, first and foremost. But also, it makes a statement. And I believe the statement is for the people that we just happen to live, of all the places we live on this planet, and it is making a statement about the size and the massive, infinite ability of our God. He has infinite power. However big it is, he could have made it 50 times bigger, and that's how powerful he is. And you've not even come close, nor have I, to discovering or even thinking in our wildest imagination how powerful the Son of God is. I mean, I mean, rich in holiness, rich and powerful, rich and I mean, to, to the point we could do like we did seven weeks ago, get silly on the infinite knowledge of God's Son. He knows everything, everything, at all times. He's rich in all of this. Number two, notice verse number nine, the temporary poverty of Christ. The temporary poverty of Christ. Verse number nine, 
Why is Paul appealing to them for this offering? Because for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, and by this again he means infinite, measureless, boundless wealth of riches and all the best things. Yet for your sake he became poor. I want to challenge you. Go home and think three phrases in the New Testament that come to your mind that the Bible uses for that moment of, of Christmas. We don't know what day the Lord was born, but really the real miracle was the conception of the Lord. At that moment, so the Bible has words for that and phrases. Do any come to your mind? What, what's that called? What's that moment called in John chapter 1, verse number 14? The what? The word what? Became flesh. That's what we're talking about. This is the same thing. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. This is what we're talking about. He became poor. Philippians chapter number 2 is going to refer to it. And in fact, I'll even read it in a moment. You'll not see it on the screen. But I'm going to refer to how Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. But here, the way he words it to this group of people is, this eternal son of God with infinite riches became poor. You say, Jeff, what is that talking about? Write this down. This is not referring to Jesus' economic status while he was on earth. It included that, but that's not the primary. You say, and that's how some people, by the way, read this passage. Oh, Jesus came and he was really, really poor. And he was born to poor parentage. So much so that when they had to go make an offering at the temple, at, at his dedication, they couldn't even afford uh, the lambs or the rams that were required. So they had to do pigeons or turtle doves because they were really poor. That's true. And yes, at, at, his, at, his, at his cross death, everything that he owns seems to be on his back and he's wearing it. And so when he's crucified naked on the cross and those soldiers divide his garments among them, basically steal what he has, now he has absolutely nothing left on earth. Yes, so this phrase could be talking about his possessions and his economic status, but really that's the secondary thing. Complete your note. He became poor does not mainly describe Jesus' economic status on earth. Rather, it mainly is talking about the incarnation of the Son of God that happened at Christmas. I wish I had longer on that page. You ought to write that all in. It refers to the incarnation of the Son of God at Christmas. Incarnation means the taking on of flesh. This is what the Bible means when Christ, the Son of God, became poor. He became poor, infinitely rich. He became most destitute of anyone who's ever lived on the earth. And yet I need to pause. So to be clear, this phrase, he became poor. You say, okay, Jeff, that's equivalent. That's Paul's way of saying the word, the eternal word became flesh. And what Philippians says, it's that equivalent. The key thing we have to understand is that in this condescension and in this seismic shift, the eternal son of God did not stop being the eternal Son of God, nor stop being God the Son. So he doesn't stop being God. He just starts becoming man while also remaining God so that he becomes the most unique God-man. So he doesn't stop. Now let me read. You'll, you'll not turn there. Let me read a translation of Philippians chapter 2. Hear it. What does this phrase mean? He became poor. He was rich, but he became poor. The Bible says, now hear it. Although he existed in the form of God. I think we preached on this a year or two ago. Although he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. There's 
Paul's phrase that is equivalent to this. He emptied himself. He became poor. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God became flesh. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's what the Bible means when it says he became poor. Quickly, think here. Think with me. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here, again, this is very crude. Very incomplete. If this is equality with God, God the Father, God the Son, this is the reality that he lived in. He did not look at equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So what that means, it's not, this is not the situation in eternity past. It's not God the Father and God the Son and down here is God the Holy Spirit. No. Equality was not, if that's the case, then he would probably be thinking one day, somehow, some way, if I catch him asleep, then maybe I can take the lead in the top spot. And I can become God. No, that's not what he's at. It's not something above him that he's wanting to grasp at. Nor, watch, because he knows he's equal with God. This is the richness of this person. He knows he's equal with God. This is not something that he thinks, if I ever give this up or carry out this plan where I become human, it's going to take me down a notch or two and I'll never get back up there again. I've got to clutch it. I've got to hold on to this and not give it up. You're trying to trick me, Father. I'm not going to do that plan. I see what you're up to. No. He doesn't see it as something that has to be clutched and grabbed, nor sought after and grasped for. I have it. I have it. It's mine. It's his. So he willingly emptied himself. So you have a little list. And the list is in part accompanying that little line. What is the Son of God wealthy in? So I didn't put all of these on your handouts. We'll have just a few. But I'm going to name eight. And I want you to write four. The first couple will not be on your handout. So what happened? The eternal son of God who's wealthy in every, every way. Made a choice to carry out the plan of God. And in so doing. He condescended and yet remained God but took on humanity. And in that moment, God's son, here's a key. He purposely chose to put himself in a position where some things would happen. So we could say this. As God, his throne was in heaven. He occupies the throne of heaven. But when he became man, he temporarily left the throne of heaven and became not just a man but became a servant of men. Not just the huge step down to be a man, but here's men. He's a servant to men. That's giving up his position, as it were, temporarily. As God, think about it, he created everything. He created the whole universe. He created the whole world. He owns everything in it. And yet, he testifies during his last three years of ministry that he has nowhere to lay his head down. Why? He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a house. He personally doesn't have the money to just go get the nice hotel wherever they're going. He created the world as God, but as man, nowhere to lay his head. Write this thought down. What about the holiness of God? The holiness of God would mean he's different from everything else and he's different. He's separated from sin. Now bring these two things together. As God... His appearance is like no one else. No one else had the appearance of the eternal Son of God. 
But when he became a man, he took on an appearance that made him just like everyone else. He appeared to be just... No one could tell in a crowd which one is the Son of God. No one could tell. That man right there is the God-man. You couldn't tell by looking. His appearance was the same. Now get what I'm about to say. This one is a real mystery, and maybe we need to delve into this on Christmas morning. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. As God, he hates sin. But when he became, became a man... He took on a human nature that literally was susceptible to sin itself, to being tempted. Feel that. As God, he hates sin, and yet he became a man, really one of us, truly one of us, so that he genuinely is being tempted to sin. Sin became tempted. He never yielded. He always chose to not sin, but he put himself on, on purpose in a position where, as God, I hate sin, but now that I have the nature of mankind, I am tempted to sin, though he never sinned. In fact, on the cross, he even became sin for us, miraculously. As God, he has infinite power. But as man, he put himself in a position where he could be fatigued. Why is he fatigued? Why is he sleeping in the boat? Because he's, he's tired. He hasn't slept. Why is he sitting at the well there in Sychar, in Samaria, in John chapter 4? Why is he sitting at the well? Because... He hasn't had any food. He's lacking food. Why, on, why is he not able to carry his cross to Golgotha from Pilate's Hall? Because he's lost blood. He's lacking blood. Why on the cross is he reaching and gasping? Because he's lacking oxygen. He really Here's the omnipotent God lacking. And he has fatigue and weakness. He has infinite knowledge. And yet in his earthly ministry, he had to grow in physical stature and he grew in wisdom and understanding of things he had a time where he a woman touches him he doesn't know all he knows is someone touched me and and energy healing power went out of my body but i don't know who touched me he doesn't the in the one who knows everything now he's a man he doesn't know who touched him he talks about his second coming to the earth but he doesn't know the details of when that's going to happen he doesn't know write this down as god his beauty was infinite but his beauty became gore at the whipping post of Pilate and Pilate's judgment hall and on the cross. And I mean gore. You've never on your worst day looked as bad as Jesus did at the whipping post and on the cross. But you have never looked anything nor have you ever seen anything like him at his best. But his beauty was traded and turned and became gore. Again, his divine glory... He has infinite riches of glory, and yet glory was traded. I ask you this morning, what is the opposite of glory? What's the opposite in your mind? That if he were to become poor and poverty-stricken of glory, the opposite of glory is what? Shame. He traded glory as God for shame of a cross and shame of becoming sin and be associated with sin, becoming sin itself. Continue writing this last one. He has an eternal kind of life. The eternal kind of life as God. And yet he became a man and humbled himself. And became poor and was poverty stricken of life. So that the eternal life giving one. The one that has eternal life. Trades that in so that as a human being he can actually die within 33 years of living on the earth. We see the riches of Christ. The eternal riches. And then we see the temporary Poverty of Christ. And that leads down to the third thought this morning out of verse 9. The purpose of God. 
Look at the purpose of God. Look at it in your Bible, verse number 9 again. Hey, Corinthians, the reason I'm asking you to do this is the word for. You see that? For, because. You ought to give because of the example of the Macedonians, and you ought to give because of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, your sake, you ought to internalize that, for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So the word for in verse number 9 ties us back to verse number 8. What do we find in verse 8? We find genuine love. So think with me. Answer this before we write it. Why did the Macedonians give? The Macedonians gave not because of a command. Hey, Macedonians, I'm commanding you give now. I came and I started that church. You need to give and I'm commanding. No, they gave because they genuinely had love. They couldn't stop from giving. They wanted to give. When Again, your love is genuine. You will be a giver. And poverty is no excuse. They never said, we don't have anything to give. Oh, no, we're going to give. They no doubt sold what little they had to go liquidize it so that they could give money for the poor saints over in Jerusalem. Why did they give? Not because of a command. And so the word for is tying verses 8, the Macedonians with Christ. And so what's the lesson? Write this down. The Macedonians gave not because of a command but because of their genuine love in the same way. Jesus did not come to earth because anyone made him come. He came to earth because he loves us. He chose to come. He chose to put himself in this position. He loves us and because he wants us to be rich in eternity. And he knows the only way for you to be rich throughout eternity is for him to come and be so poverty stricken that he dies on a cross giving up the life in his human nature so he died for our sins so what does this mean look at verse 9 though he was rich Christmas happened and he became poor why so that you through his poverty might become rich so guys what does the Bible teach about Christians becoming rich what does it teach there what does that mean how do we become rich for eternity? Think about it. How do we, don't answer out loud, but just how, do, how, do I, how are we going to become rich? We've seen how Christ was rich. How does his taking on humanity and taking on poverty, how does that make us rich? In what way do we have abundance and excess and even extreme abundance, extreme excess in these areas? What do we have? What is this wealth? I propose to you this morning that because I have a list of verses below there, I want you to be really careful when you, especially if you were to go home and say, I want to see these defended in the scripture. And if you were to go home and read 2 Peter 1.4, which I'm not going to give you right now on the screen. You go home and read it. I don't want us to have the wrong impression, so I'm going to offer to you the following. Believers will never become God. You say, he who was rich became poor so that we become rich. Does that mean we become God? There are people who believe this nonsense. Nor does it mean that we will become gods, little g. We will not become gods. And yet, I don't even know what I'm fully talking about here, but I'm going to tell you. What it means is we're going to become rich because when you trust Christ as your Savior, you become a partaker of the very divine nature of God. And that's right in the Bible. 
You say, what does that mean, Jeff? I'm sure it has something to do with the Holy Spirit living in us. All I know is we don't have our old nature anymore. We have a new nature, and we become a partaker of the divine nature of God. We don't become God nor gods, but we become partakers. That's rich. We are now entered into the divine nature of God. We get that. You say, what else? What other riches? We become extremely wealthy in holiness. Christians become wealthy in holiness. You say, are you kind of bragging that we're better than? No, no, no. Of ourselves, we have no holiness, but we start to share in His holiness. His holiness becomes our holiness. We now are rich in holiness. We, Christians, you ought to get this. We become rich in glory. We have no glory of ourselves, but when we become a, a Christian, a believer in the Lord, we become wealthy in glory. We're going to have glorified bodies, not His level of glory, but He's going to shine upon us in such a way we have glory and we will receive and share in His very life. So, so much so that it is also called eternal kind of life. No, we don't become gods, but we partake of His divine nature and we share in His holiness and glory. And eternal life, and no doubt many other ways we become wealthy. And that's why we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through, verse 4 through 9. So, in 1979, I became a Christian. And here's why. I said, Jeff, why did you become a Christian as a nine-year-old boy? I want you to listen. I became a Christian because I didn't want to go to hell. That's a good reason. Isn't it? How many of you, the best you could tell, go back to when you got saved. You say, Jeff, I'm probably with you. The primary reason I got saved the night I got saved was because I didn't want to go to hell. Would you raise your hand? That's a lot of us. That's not all of us. It's not all of us. But do you understand the difference, what I'm talking about this morning? What's being offered? And by the way, that happened. I have escaped hell. I really did get saved. But what's being talked about this morning is something different from that. This is talking about becoming a true saint, a Christian, a true Christian, not just to escape hell, but to gain this relationship with the Lord wherein we share in His nature and His holiness. It's, it's like the positive side of it. I just wanted to escape the negative of what was coming my way. This is more on the positive side. So here's where I want to finish this morning. Here's where I'm finishing. I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. This morning, is there anyone here? You are not yet a Christian, but you say, I need to become a Christian. Maybe, you never, maybe you're not going to hell has ever motivated you enough to get saved, but maybe this has struck home this morning, and you're like, that Ephesians 2-7, I want in on that. I want in on that. How do I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. And if you think you're a Christian, you ought to check yourself line by line. I'm going to tell you how you do it, as simple as I know how. You're going to have to believe. Listen, you are going to have to believe. You better believe. You say, what do I have to believe? First thing you have to believe is this. You have to understand. Part of believing is understanding. You say, what do I have to understand? I want in on this Ephesians 2.7. You have to first understand that God hates sin. And you have sinned. You 
not even knowing it was wrong, have coveted and lusted for things, and you were breaking God's law. But you also have knowingly and willingly lied and disobeyed your parents and stolen things. You have willfully disobeyed God, and God hates your sin, and He will not let you and your sin into heaven. You better believe that. The second thing you better understand, you have to understand this. You say, I want, I want Ephesians 2.7. I want in on that. Then you must also understand that God is a God of justice. There's a reason we want justice. It's in us, except when it's against us. We want justice on them. And we want mercy on ourselves. Why is that in us? Because God is a God of justice and he made you. And here's what that means. God not only hates your sin, God must punish your sin. He has to. If God overlooks your sin and ignored your sin, then he's not a God of justice. He has to punish it. In fact, he is so determined he will punish your sin. you got to get this. When his son became poor and was hanging on a cross and all of our sins was poured on his very son, he loves his son, yet he is so devoted to justice that when his son took our sin, God punished his son, his own son, with eternal wrath. On him that belongs to us because God is committed to justice. Now, if you understood that thought, you better know this next thought. Anybody who ever rejects the sacrifice of his son on the cross, you better believe he will send you to hell for eternity. And you will have earned it. But God loves us. See, to, to get Ephesians 2.7, you have to believe this. You have to believe. I mean like Believe. God loved me so much. He sent his son. And what condescension that he came to earth and died on a cross. He became a human being so he could die. Now leave your spot here. Go back to Ephesians 2. Would you flip over there? This is where we finish. Ephesians 2. I read verse 8. You say, how do I get that verse 7? Well... I read verse 8 and 9, but we need to read it again because here's the other thing. You, you have to, you say, how, I want it. How do I have it? You have to, have to believe what verse 8 is talking about. You have to believe it. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's what I say you have to believe. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Listen to it. This is what the Bible says, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. How do I get saved? By grace you've been saved. By grace. Grace means God is a gracious giver. So the, reason, the way you get saved is understand this. God is so gracious. He'll give, he will forgive my sin. And he'll give me this eternal life for free. Would you do me a favor? And this isn't. I know some folks you're like. I, I don't remember the exact day Jeff. I remember a time period. Who here remembers. And I'm not saying it's better than. Who remembers the day. You remember, well, raise your hand. You remember the day you got saved? Could you imagine this? Here's grace. What year was it? 2017. So there's Astrid living life in 2017. Here's what God does. You better get ready, girl. I'm getting ready to give you something. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this. Doug, wasn't that long ago. God says, I'm, I'm going to give you something, and I'm going to pour it out on you. What do they do? What do they do? Just let it happen. Take it. That's how you get saved is when you realize. So wait, what, what do I have to do to get saved? 
You have to understand, God hates your sin. He's going to punish your sin, but he already punished your sin on his son. And because his son's death on the cross is enough, God says, based on that, I'm just going to give you salvation for free. Don't try to do anything to help me. It's free. If you try to help, then you're going to brag. So I'm going to give it to you. Get ready. Here, I'm going to give you Ephesians 2.7. And you may not have even known that you were getting Ephesians 2.7, but that's what you got. That's what I got. I didn't know what I was getting. I knew I was escaping hell. What I got was a whole lot more. Get ready. Here it comes. I'm doing this. That's how you get saved. Now, let's finish. You say, Jeff, is that all? Hang on. You have to agree with God. So I'm asking all of us this morning, has you, have you ever had a time where you just said, God, in whatever broken way you need to do it, I mean, you just... You go face-to-face with God, and it's a, he has to initiate this. I understand. God just takes you face-to-face, and you just talk with him. And it's, it's something, some version, some broken, less-than-perfect version of this where you're just like, God, you're right, and I've been wrong. Have you ever done this? God, you say I'm a sinner, and you are right. I've broken your law. I deserve your wrath. But have you ever done this? God, you said that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is your son, God the son. And you said his death on the cross was for me. And I believe that too. And your word says it was enough to pay for all of my sin. All of it. You may be here this morning saying, Jeff, you don't understand. You don't know what I've struggled with. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm fighting with. All I'll say is, whatever it is, what Jesus did on the cross is greater than what you're struggling with. He saves people. He saved a lot worse than you. So you say, then how do we get it? What I just described. Here it is. God, you're holy. And you're a God of justice. But you are a loving God. And you give away salvation for free. I acknowledge I'm a Christian. And I acknowledge that Jesus' death was for me. And it is enough. And so here it is. Here's here's the thing that separates those in this room who are just informed about the facts versus those in the room who are going to experience Ephesians 2.7. Here's the difference. These people have saving faith when they go, I understand all of that, and I don't know why you sent your son. I don't know why you loved us while we're over there in the sandbox of sin, but since you did, I've taken it. I want it. I want it right now. Your word says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone, any kind of person. I've got a big mess in my head, in my life right now. But I am calling on you to save me and I'm believing you're going to do it. I'm going to rest in your provision. I'm just going to take your salvation. And I'm not even going in the back of my mind thinking, and I'm going to be a good person to help seal the deal. No, I'm trusting Jesus' death alone. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we'll finish with one last song. Before we do, there may be somebody here this morning or someone listening online, and this describes you. This is what you need to do. You may be here and you're saying, Jeff. I think I understand how to be saved today. And I want Ephesians 2.7. I want it. I'm going to tell you how to do that. Will you just let me prompt you exactly what to do? You're not going to do any work. 
You're not going to work your way to heaven. You're not going to like perfectly pray your way to heaven. But I'm going to invite you to do this based on the promises of the word of God. The Bible says in John 3, 16, here that this is where you're going to anchor your faith. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, that's you, whoever believes in him will not perish. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says if you'll believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So how do you do it? Bring God. Talk to God. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to the air. Don't talk to anyone around you in your mind. You talk to God and you tell him this. Tell him this. Lord, tell him. You're right about me. I've sinned against you. I am admitting it. I admit it. Tell him. And then, tell him. But Lord, I believe Jesus' death was for me. Tell him. Talk to God. God, I believe your son's death was for me. And go the whole way. Tell him, God, I believe. Talk to God. God, I believe your son's death was enough to pay for all my sins. It was enough. And then, really mean it. Act like God is telling the truth. Talk to God and say, God... Since you're offering salvation and forgiveness for free, I receive it right now. I'm asking you to save me right now. Right at this moment, this is the day I'm going to get saved. I receive your salvation right now. I take it. And then believe and just fall back and rest on the promises of God. Father, Father. I pray that you've saved someone this morning. And I pray that you've made things clear and simple and urgent. Urgent. Thank you for the truth of what we sung about this morning. Lord, thank you for Ephesians 2.7. I don't know what all that means. I'm looking forward to it. I expect it. I know you can't lie. Lord, I pray if anyone here this morning, for the first time in their life, put their faith faith in Christ, would you give them boldness to share that news and to let it be known that they're a brand new Christian as we celebrate this morning in Christ's name.